This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now, today, as we get started, I just want to ask and see if there's some people. It really, you probably have to be over 40 or at least around there to kind of sympathize with this statement. But that, that growing older is not easy. How many of y'all would say that? Like there's, you felt it when you got out of bed this morning, your back hurt, your knees hurt. And there's some things that change as you get older, right? There are just some things, some things that used to be mean something. All of a sudden they mean something. Like if you're a lady and you go into Target at this time of year and you see all the new swimsuits, when you were younger, you probably got really excited about that. But maybe now you're like, oh crap, those things again. (laughs) I'm just not even ready for this right now. And if you're a guy in here, maybe in your younger days, like there, there was a time that you used the term all-nighter to describe that you stayed up all night, and we're just going to say studied, okay? You stayed up all night to study, all right? But, but now, as an older guy, I find that all-nighter means something different, totally different. It means that I slept through the entire night and didn't have to get up and pee, right? So I got an all-nighter right? That's what that means. There's some things that just get, they just become, but there's some things that become a little bit more awesome the older you get. As a matter of fact, one of those is that the older that you get, the easier it becomes to spot the stupid things that young people say and do. Have you noticed that? Right? It just becomes like you can see through what they're saying. For example, let's just say this was you. You were out on a nature walk with your son, and your son um, saw that there was a squirrel that was coming up, and he was being friendly. It was a nice squirrel. At least that's what you thought. And your son said, Dad, here, take my phone and take a picture. I'm going to grab the squirrel and hold it. Now, there are a lot of us that we would say, no, son, squirrels are evil. He'll bite your face off. Don't grab him. But there, maybe you're like me, and you would want to see what would happen, right? <laughs> which, which is, this is what happens right here, the squirrel attacking this young man. I mean, I don't know if you've paid attention. Some things have changed since I was in school. When I was in school, um, we didn't have to put on, put on like full like theater productions to ask someone to the prom, which apparently is how it is now today. Um, I, the girl I asked to go to my junior prom, I literally handed her, I never talked to her ever before, and I handed her a note in the hallway, and she handed me a note after class that said yes. We didn't talk until the prom. We, I mean, it was just that simple. It was a horrible experience, but, and I don't recommend it for anybody at all, but that's how it went down. But now it's so different. And so imagine that your son came and said, Dad, I found the perfect way to invite my girlfriend to go to the prom with me. It's going to be this. So it's this letter that this guy wrote his girlfriend, and she had applied to go to the University of South Carolina, and he sent her a fake rejection letter. And at the, how many of you, if you were a dad, you would kind of cut that idea off at some point along the way, right? And here's what's, you want to know what's really stupid? She said yes. <laughs> she went to the prom with that guy. 
That's amazing to me. And I think that the older that we get, the reason that we start to spot the stupid things that young people say and do is because the older that we get, people watching becomes a lot more fun, doesn't it? I mean, how many of y'all have noticed that? that you, like, like you get bored and you don't really need to, but you go to Walmart just so you can watch people. It just happens. This is what you do. I've noticed that about myself. The older I get, the more I watch people, the more I learn. Now, we're going to read a, a large chunk of scripture today that comes out of Luke chapter 23. And in this, there are many different groups of people that are watching the same event. Okay, they're watching the same thing. They're watching the crucifixion of Jesus. I, I want you to see how this plays out in this moment. It's so powerful. It's so unique. So let's go ahead and we're going to start reading right now. Luke 23, Luke chapter 23. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon. Now, let me just pause there and set up where we are with this. Jesus is being led away from the praetorium, which is kind of where he was being held by the Roman governor, Pilate. The night before he had been arrested, he had been arrested on charges that he had claimed that he was God. And so Judas, one of his friends, betrayed him. He was taken into custody in the morning. He was presented to the Roman governor, Pilate. The claim that he was God would have literally been a crime in Roman, in Roman eyes. And the, the, in that moment, though, Pilate has some wisdom. He didn't want to deal with it, so he sent him to Herod, who was the king of the Jews. Herod, also being wise, has said it. I don't want to mess with them. So he sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate, thinking, all right, these guys are trying to bring um, execution-level charges against Jesus. I'm going to do something to try to get him out of my... I'm going to, I'm going to order a scourging, which was a, a beating that he would have taken from what was called a cat of nine tails whip. All right, this was a, a leather whip that had nine threads at the end of it. The, the threads, the nine different threads had bones and rocks sewn into it so that when it hit flesh, it would sink into the flesh. Jesus took almost the entire um, like there was a, a number of, of thrashes that you could take. He took almost the, the full brunt of it. Most people who had been sentenced to what he was sentenced to died. But he was brought back in. Pilate thought that he had been taken care of and that it would be over with, but the crowd continued to push. Pilate decided he would barter um, during that season of time. It was very customary for someone to be released from prison, and so he decided, I'll get the worst criminal that we have, a man named Barabbas. He was a murderer and a thief, and he brought him out, and the crowd presented both of those. You choose one. Obviously, he's thinking they're going to choose Jesus, and they choose Barabbas, and at this point in time, man, his hands are tied, and so he sentences Jesus to be executed, and so as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in the countryside. And the soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Two others, both criminals, were led to be executed with him when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross 
and the animals or the the criminals were also crucified one on his right and one on his left jesus said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and as the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice the crowd watched and the leader scoffed he saved others they said let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. A sign was fastened above him with the words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah. Are you? Well, then prove it by saving yourself and us too. So while you're at it. But other, the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So by this time, it was about noon, and the darkness fell over the whole land until about 3 o'clock. And the light from the sun was gone. And suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle, and Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, notice all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. And the first thing that I want you to see It's in your notes today, if you're taking notes, is that large numbers of people watched the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, and you grew up in churches where we did our own little passion plays, you know, and and, and we would have two or three people that would be walking with Jesus. It didn't work out that way. That's not really a good image of what happened. Uh, The biblical historian Josephus, I I didn't say Bocephus. Some of y'all got really excited because you thought I said Bocephus and thought all the Hank Williams Jr. Yeah, no, Josephus. Josephus was a biblical historian who lived around the time of Christ, claims that at this point in time, there were about three million people in Jerusalem. All right, so just to put some context in that, that's L.A. L.A. is a little over three million people. And he's being paraded through some of the most populated portions of the city on his way to an execution. And this time, those were some of the largest, most well-attended events that happened in the city. So who saw Jesus' crucifixion? There were critics. Obviously, the, the Pharisees and chief priests that had him arrested were there. Who also? Casual onlookers. I mean, isn't that Joseph who just happened to be in the city who's forced to carry his cross? And then there were his companions. And let me just, if you read the passage out of Luke that we just read, you cannot help but see how important women were to the following of Jesus. 
that Luke makes careful attention for us to know that those ladies were there and their presence was prominent. There were lots of people that were witnessing this. But number two, this is interesting to me. Not everyone saw the same thing at the cross. Not everyone saw the same thing. I mean, the truth is, is that even for us in the room right now, all of us that are here, there are many of us that are in the room and we still don't see the same thing in the cross. There were some that for them, the cross was just a moment. It's the soldiers who were gambling at the feet of Jesus, rolling dice to see who would get his clothes. And there's some of us, maybe even some of your friends, that when we talk about the cross of Jesus, we don't deny its validity, but it's just a moment in time. It's not important. It's not significant. I'm not going to argue it's factual evidence. It's just a moment. But for some... The cross was emotional. The cross was emotional. The man in charge of the execution was moved. And after the execution said, surely this man was innocent. The crowd that witnessed it, the biblical record says that they beat their chest. Now we do that. Like if you watch the NBA today, we do that after we celebrate, right? We just kind of beat our chest. But in those days, it was a sign of grief. It was a sign of mourning. The crowds and the people who watched it, they they were moved. It was emotional. But can I just tell you that the guy still executed, the Roman official still oversaw his execution. The crowd still cried out for the life of Jesus over a man named Barabbas. It was emotional, but it didn't change anything. And there's some of us that that's what the cross has been. It's been emotional. But for some of us, and for some that watched it that day, the cross of Jesus was life-changing. I mean, the followers of Jesus, we'll call them his disciples, were almost all executed. Every single one of them, the one that we call the 12, every single one of them was sentenced to be executed. And Peter was so moved by this moment that when he was sentenced to be crucified, he begged for them to crucify him upside down so that he would not be crucified in the image of his Lord. It was life-changing. And it was life-changing because something happened at the cross that I think that sometimes we miss. Do you notice that every group that was there encouraged him to save himself? The Pharisees and religious leaders, save yourself. The the Roman guards, save yourself. Even the thief that was hanging next to him, save yourself and us. I love that. And, And would you say, and us? But he didn't. See, the next thing he notes is so important that instead of saving himself, Jesus chose to save us. Instead of saving himself, Jesus chose to save us. Because I want you to, I just want you to get this picture of what the cross is. Jesus knew that there was no way for him to save himself and save you. And so he was willing to sacrifice himself. 
So with all of those perspectives of the cross, I think it's important sometimes for us to just say, what should I see in the cross? When I think about the cross, when I'm confronted with the cross, what should I see? So I'm going to give you five things this morning that we should see in the cross. The first thing is that we should see a price that was paid. A price that was paid. On the cross, Jesus paid a price for us that we could never pay for ourselves. We could never buy ourselves out of the guilt that we held with God, but Jesus paid the price. Ephesians 1.7 says it this way, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He purchased it. Just think about this with me. How many of you struggle, struggle with feeling like you need to pay the price? You need to be good enough. You need to earn the favor with God. You need to earn a relationship in love. You need to be good enough. See, the thing is, you can't earn grace. It wouldn't be grace if you could earn it. It wouldn't be grace if you could earn it. And at the cross, we see a price that was paid, and we learn that we don't get to pay for our sins because Jesus has already picked up the tab. We don't get to because there was a price that was paid. Number two, what should we see in the cross? We should see a decision that must be made. A decision that must be made. Have have you ever noticed that when you read the story of the cross, that nobody seems neutral in the story? There's nobody just standing going, I don't know what's going on here, I'm just watching. Everybody's making a decision about who Jesus should be. I heard one pastor say one time, when we approach Jesus, Jesus can only be one of three things. He can only be a liar a lunatic, or he deserves to be Lord. And there were many in the crowd that day that felt like he was a liar. There were some that thought he was crazy, but there were some that thought he was their Lord. And there's a decision that we have to make when we confront and and, and put ourselves in front of the cross. It's a decision that those thieves had to make. They were hung on each side of him, isn't it? You know what's interesting to me? Each thief has to be saved. Each one did. But only one of them made the right decision about who Jesus was. You notice how that first thief responded to him? If you are the Son of God. But the other thief said, Jesus... Remember me when you get into your kingdom. I love this. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I heard a pastor say one time, just imagine heaven right after the cross. Jesus has been crucified. The penalty's been said. He's got three days to chill out before the resurrection, and he comes walking into heaven. But right behind him is a thief. A man who died a criminal's death that he deserved, who had shamed his mom and dad, 
who didn't deserve anything. (laughs) Right? There he is. There's a decision that has to be made. Number three, what should we see in the cross? An invitation for a new beginning. An invitation for a new beginning. I don't know if you're here today and life has kind of gotten away from you and you know that today you need a, you need a fresh start. The price that was paid at the cross was paid so that you could experience a new beginning. In Revelation 21, Jesus on the throne speaking of the redemption that is accomplished in our lives because of the work on the cross, says this, and the one sitting on the throne looking said, look, I am making everything new. Maybe today you need a new beginning. Maybe that's where you are. You need a brand new beginning. And so I just want to encourage you that when we look at the cross, it's an invitation to a new beginning. Maybe you started this year out with us praying and fasting for 21 days and you were seeking God and God was speaking to you, but then you had some ball practices to go to for your kids and then all of a sudden just life got a little bit more busy and right now you're just going, hey, you know, I just really don't know where God is. It's good to know. It's good to know that when we look at the cross, that it's an invitation to a new beginning. Number four, hope for our future. Hope for our future. You know, it's sad to me that so many people that I, I sit down and talk with have no hope for their future. And the reason that they don't, don't have hope is really it's anchored in their, their frail relationship with God. Corinthians says that these three will remain faith, hope, and love. And I think that faith sustains a real hope. And the greatest enemy to our, our hope is, is sin. Like Sin kills hope. And some of us have lost hope because of things that we've done. And some of us have lost hope because of things that have been done to us. I mean, the Bible does say in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. I mean, sin kills. It kills relationships. It kills us, and it will kill the hope that we have. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, sin will steal your hope. But when we look at the cross where Jesus absorbed and paid the penalty of our sin, we can find hope for the future. And the last thing that we should see in the cross, number five, is an offer of healing and freedom. An offer of healing and freedom. Just imagine that the prophet Isaiah years before Jesus would ever walk the earth, spoke of what was going to happen when Pilate sent him away to be whipped. And he said it is by his stripes, by the lashes that he would take, he would purchase our healing. And I think that freedom, the invitation to freedom is really the whole purpose of all of this. Galatians would say it is for freedom that he set you free. He wants you 
to live in freedom. And some of you have been bound by fear and insecurity and doubt and worry and anger and discord. And God wants you to experience freedom that only comes from him. Because sin, sin sold you into slavery and stole your freedom. In a sin held you ransom, you can imagine the scene in the auction house where there you were sitting and the father walked in and said, I want to buy that one back. And see, sin had the right to demand death. And it did. And God said, I'll pay the penalty with my son. And he gave his son and Jesus was born in the fragile trappings of, a, of an infant and he grew up to become a man. And in between those two moments, he never failed, he never sinned, he was tempted and tried just like we all are. There was nothing unrighteous and unright about him. But he was convicted as a criminal, hung on a cross, which is one of the most brutal executions in human history to absorb the penalty of our sin. God paid that for you. So look at what 1 Corinthians 7.23 says. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.